I want to give you a little bit of a, a preview of what we'll be doing this fall. There, there are many people in our culture and many in the church uh, who love Jesus, but who are struggling with some of the ways that the Christian faith is being present, presented and lived out in our culture. And so many are taking a step back, and they're trying to separate Jesus from the cultural and the political baggage that he's often associated with. Or they're examining some of the things that they've been taught or some of the things that have been modeled for them over the years that don't seem to match the Jesus that they meet in the Gospels. Or they're trying to assess whether or not the church is a safe place, if it's a healthy place, if the leaders can be trusted. And I think what's at the core of many of these experiences is a longing to feel safe, to ask questions, to wrestle with doubts, to challenge the status quo, to read the scriptures with fresh eyes. And so our fall sermon series is going to be really for, for three different kinds of people. It's going to be for those who are asking these questions, who are trying to, to parse out, to, to, to peel away these layers that have grown up around Jesus that don't fit. And if that's you, we want to we validate and we want to encourage you in that process and hopefully provide a, a roadmap that's constructive and hopeful. It's also going to be for those of you who have people in your life that you really care about, that you really love, and they're going through this, and you want to be a faithful companion to them. You want to be someone who, who can come alongside of them with, with wisdom and, and help them and not hinder them or frustrate them. And it's going to be for those of you who might be confused about all of this and wondering why this is happening and what it means and why you should care. And ultimately, our goal this fall will be to love one another and encourage one another on our spiritual journeys, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we're carrying. And the goal is to make our lives, our, our families, our, our small groups, our, our church safe places to heal and ask questions and wrestle with doubts and be in process as we relate to Jesus and his family. And throughout the fall, we'll mix in different stories of people who've been on these journeys. We'll create opportunities for conversation so that we can safely and authentically process our journeys together. And so I'd ask you to be in prayer about this. Pray that God will use this series, use this fall to, to deepen our pursuit of him, to deepen our love for one another. And this might be a natural opportunity for you to invite someone in your life who has taken that step back to maybe step back in with you and experience this or, or at the very least to listen to and process and discuss these sermons with you. So we hope you'll join us this fall. Uh, we're coming to the end of our series on public virtues. Uh, most people in America aren't particularly happy with the state of public life. We're discouraged. We're weary. We're not, we're not exactly sure what we can do about it. At the same time, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. I'm sending you into the world to live abundant lives, to preserve the world from decay. And one of the ways that we can be a breath of fresh air is by cultivating these, these public virtues, these ways of being in the world, these ways of being in relationship that provide hope and healing and maybe even a glimpse into the world that Jesus is creating. And today we're going to talk about compassion and how compassion is unique, it's boundless, it's incarnational, 
And then we're going to talk about the ultimate goal of showing compassion. Uh, first, though, I, I want us to see uh, that God is compassionate. Over and over, uh, all throughout the scriptures, we find a God who is moved by compassion to act on behalf of those who are suffering. The exodus from Egypt begins with Hebrew slaves crying out to God, groaning. And God hears their cries. He's attentive to their groaning. He understands their pain. And he gets personally involved. He rescues them from slavery. He leads them out of Egypt into a land to call their own, into a place where they can flourish. The book of Judges is this, this kind of strange series of cycles the people of Israel keep experiencing the same cycle over and over again. And the cycle begins with, with them crying out to God in distress. And Yahweh hears their cry and he has compassion on them and he delivers them. And over and over again we see that Yahweh is moved by our suffering. He's moved by our need. And he responds by drawing near to his people. By getting personally involved in their lives and acting in order to bring relief and rescue and wholeness. Several times in the Old Testament, God is described as being compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This gets repeated over and over and over again. It's the drumbeat of the Old Testament. Prophet Isaiah writes, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to his compassion. God's saving activity throughout history is motivated by his compassion. Jesus is compassionate. Matthew 14 says, when Jesus arrived at the shore and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. On another occasion, Jesus had compassion on a large crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. There's a poignant scene in, in Luke's gospel that says, as Jesus approached the gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. This isn't a, a naked display of power. This isn't Jesus showing off. His heart goes out to this grieving widow. And according to his compassion, he restores her son. In John 11, Jesus greets two grieving sisters, Mary and Martha. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And then Jesus walked to Lazarus' grave and called to him. And Lazarus walked out alive. A lot of people think that, uh, think that God is this unmovable object. 
He's, he's, he's too powerful. He's too aloof to, to feel pain. But over and over again, throughout the scriptures, we meet a God who is profoundly moved by suffering, whose heart is tuned to the cries of the distressed, who notices our need, who chooses to draw near, who gets personally involved, and from this posture of withness, God redeems and restores. God is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. And we are called to be agents of compassion in the world. Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 2 Corinthians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. So what exactly is compassion and how is it different from pity and empathy, two words that often get lumped together with compassion. How are they different? Well, pity maintains a safe distance. Pity allows you to be a spectator to suffering. I'm here, you're there, and I'm really glad I'm not in your position. Pity acknowledges suffering, but it doesn't get involved. Now, unlike pity, empathy draws near. It feels the other person's pain. Sometimes this is exactly what we need. We need someone to validate our emotions. We need to feel understood. But sometimes empathy is not what we need. Sometimes when I'm anxious, I need someone to be calm. I don't need them to be anxious with me. Sometimes when I'm feeling uncertain, I need someone to be confident. When I go to the doctor, more than empathy, I want competence. Now, we all have default settings, and some of us, when we encounter suffering, our default setting is to show empathy. We draw near. We feel that person's pain. We shoulder their emotional burdens, and sometimes that's a gift. But over time, it can lead to burnout. And sometimes it can burn us out without our ever actually making a difference in that other person's life. Pity maintains a safe distance. Empathy draws near. Pity means you can be a spectator to suffering. Empathy gets involved. But even empathy doesn't go far enough. If empathy says, I feel your pain, compassion says, no, I feel my own feelings about your situation. And my own feelings motivate me to do what I can to relieve your suffering, to improve your situation. If you're feeling lonely or helpless or marginalized, the best thing I can do for you is not to feel lonely, helpless, and marginalized. The best thing I can do for you is to recognize your pain and do something about it. Improve your situation. Compassion involves every single part of your being. You feel compassion. Your heart goes out to someone. You think, that could be me. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. You desire to remove their burden, to ease their suffering, and then you act 
in concrete ways to improve their situation. If a neighbor on your street is receiving chemotherapy, compassion might look like helping them with chores around the house or transportation or setting up a meal train. If you come in contact with a refugee, compassion might look like helping them to find a job or helping them navigate public transportation, practice their English. If you know a single parent whose car just broke down, compassion might mean helping them to get it back on the road so they don't lose their job or lose their childcare. If your teenager has a friend with a difficult home life, compassion might be giving them carte blanche permission to invite themselves over to dinner at your house anytime. Pity acknowledges suffering. Empathy gets close to suffering. But compassion relieves suffering. Compassion is unique. Compassion is boundless. Though we keep trying to limit it, in a variety of ways. For instance, I only show compassion to people who live nearby. Don't talk to me about those people over there. Don't, don't talk to me about suffering people on the other side of the world. I've got plenty of people nearby who need my help. Now, it's important to act locally. But more than once, Jesus showed compassion to people who were far away. We live in an age where we not only know all about the needs of people far, far away, but we are empowered to act in meaningful ways to relieve the suffering of people all over the globe. And because resources and opportunities aren't evenly distributed, we should never write off suffering people just because they're not nearby. Here's another way we often limit compassion. I only show compassion to individuals. But as we read earlier, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They should have been unified. They should have been at peace with each other, but instead they were scattered and confused and poorly led. And sometimes groups suffer. Think of communities that have been devastated by natural disasters or unemployment or war or racism or opioid, opioid addiction. Throughout church history, Christians have responded with compassion in response to big challenges from disease to illiteracy to slavery to extreme poverty. Sometimes we need to have compassion on the crowds. Another way we limit compassion is by saying, I only show compassion to people who deserve it. First off, how do you know? Secondly, watch Jesus. He has compassion on both victims and choosers. The marginalized leper and the tax collector who abuses his power. Sometimes choosers need additional compassion because they've been carrying guilt. They've been carrying shame with no knowledge of God's forgiveness and grace. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are the recipient of grace that you didn't deserve. You are the recipient of undeserved compassion. How could we possibly withhold compassion from others who don't deserve it? Compassion is boundless. However, and there's a tension here, our capacity for showing compassion is limited. 
And so we need wisdom, we need discernment, we need to wrestle with questions like, who should we prioritize helping? Should we prioritize those who are suffering most severely or those that we feel we're best equipped to help? Should we be prioritizing the needy person on our doorstep or the needy crowds far away? What resources has God given us and who needs them most? Should we do what suffering people tell us to do? Or should we do what we think would be most helpful? These aren't easy questions. We need to listen to and rely on the Holy Spirit as we ask them. Compassion is boundless, but our capacity is limited. So it's encouraging to remember that even Jesus had to live with limits. Jesus did not heal every sick or injured person in Palestine. Sometimes he said to the crowds, I have to go. I have other towns I need to visit. Sometimes people went looking for Jesus and he was up a mountain commuting with his father. One time Jesus was on retreat with his disciples. And he got word that his friend Lazarus was close to death. But instead of packing up and heading out to see his friend immediately, Jesus stayed on retreat for two more days. Jesus lived with limits. He said no. He took breaks. So should we. At the same time, Jesus never placed limits on who was deserving of his compassion, and neither should we. Can we hold that tension? Compassion is boundless. Our, our capacity is limited. Compassion is unique, it's boundless, and it's incarnational. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Compassion draws near. It erases the distance between us and our neighbor. Father Greg Boyle says, Jesus was not a man for others. He was a man with others. He didn't seek the rights of lepers. He touched lepers. He didn't champion the cause of the outcast. He became an outcast. He didn't fight for improved conditions for those in prison. He said, I was in prison. Jesus wasn't about taking the right stand. He was about standing in the right place. Those words punch at our slacktivism. We always want to appear on the right side. We always want to appear compassion, but are we moving our feet and showing compassion? Is there dirt under our fingernails? Compassion crosses the road. It moves in. It gets its hand dirty. Henry Nouwen writes, Compassion is not bending toward the underprivileged from a privileged position. It's not reaching out from on high to those who are less fortunate below. It's not a gesture of sympathy or pity for those who, who fail to climb the ladder. No. Compassion means going directly to those people and places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. Compassion creates kinship. We have a ministry with a homeless called The Gap, and I'll never forget a conversation I had with a gentleman a few years ago who said, this is the only place in town that doesn't make me feel like a client. This is the only place where I feel like a person. 
We lay the groundwork for compassion when we notice our neighbor and affirm their humanity. I wonder how we might do this with a cashier at the grocery store or the member of the cleaning crew at work or the med tech at our doctor's office or the parent who's always picking up their kid late. This summer, uh, we went to uh, Washington, D.C. for a few days and one morning I was at the metro station and a train was coming and I wasn't sure if it was my train and I was anxious. So I turned to the man next to me and said, uh, does that train go downtown? And he said, good morning. <laughs> I said, good morning, does this train go downtown? And he said, good morning. I just want you to acknowledge my humanity like I'm acknowledging your humanity. Now we can talk. In my rush to know whether or not I should be getting on that train, I had forgotten that I was in the presence of an image bearer. And I wonder how many opportunities we miss to show compassion because we're just not present to the people around us in a meaningful way. We don't notice what they're carrying because we're too wrapped up in ourselves or in our devices. Compassion is incarnational. It draws near. It creates kinship. It levels the playing field. All right, finally, what's the goal of compassion? Is it to meet a need? Is it to relieve suffering? What's the goal? The ultimate goal of compassion is reconciliation and restoration. Now, how the heck did you get that? If you ask What's wrong with the world? The Bible's answer is broken relationships. What's wrong with the world is broken relationships. Humans are alienated from God. We're alienated from one another. We're alienated from creation. And we're alienated from ourselves. All of our relationships are broken. And the ultimate goal of compassion is to restore, to reconcile these relationships. Watch how Jesus does it. In Mark 5, Jesus is on his way to a synagogue ruler's house because his daughter, who's 12 years old, is at death's door. So he's hoofing it. And there's a big crowd around him. And while he's on the way, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years scrapes and claws her way through the crowd to get to Jesus and she reaches out and just manages to touch the hem of his robe and instantly her bleeding stops. It's a miracle. When this happens, Jesus feels power leaving him. So he stops in his tracks and he looks around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples think he's ridiculous because there's this huge crowd. There's tons of people all around. They're like, who didn't touch you, Jesus? I mean, come on. But Jesus waits. And finally, this woman comes forward. And Jesus listens as she tells her story. And he affirms her faith. And he assures her of her salvation. And he restores her to community. 
Father Greg Boyle says that compassion is the wallpaper of Jesus' soul. Jesus sees people in their entirety, not as little bundles of need, not as burdens on two legs, but as people created in God's image who are suffering from broken relationships and who need to be restored comprehensively. He never just meets a need. He always restores relationships. Boyle says that Jesus' strategy with sinners and outcasts is to eat with them. Why? Because sharing a meal in that culture meant friendship. Jesus was restoring people to community. Jesus was restoring people to God. And as he ministered to their fear and their shame, he was restoring people to themselves. The goal of compassion is reconciliation, healed relationships. And that's why when someone comes to me or someone comes to one of our deacons with a practical need, say with a a bill they can't pay or a necessity they can't afford, we always ask lots of questions. And and it's not to be nosy or, or invasive. We want to know, what are you carrying? Who's helping you carry it? Who's your support system? Do you have a family? Is your family a source of stress or a source of help? Where are you on your spiritual journey? What kind of conversations are you having with God? And we ask these questions because we want to know how we can minister to the whole person. Not just their physical needs, but their emotional and spiritual and relational needs. See? One of my favorite scenes in the Gospels is is in Mark chapter 2. There's a paralyzed man. And his friends wanted to bring him to Jesus to get healed. So they pick him up and they carry him to the house where Jesus is teaching. The problem is when they get there, uh, the house is bursting at the seams with people. There's, There's no room. They couldn't get in. They couldn't even get close to the door. They could not get their friend to Jesus. So guess what they did? They climbed onto the roof. And the roof was probably made of dirt. And they started pulling the roof apart and filling the living room with dirt. And when they get the hole big enough, they drop their friend through the roof right at Jesus' feet. Don't you want friends like that? Now, is this vandalism? No, it's compassion. The man is handicapped. He's alienated from his own body. He's alienated from the community. He can't work. He can't contribute. He has to beg. Some people take pity on him. Most people walk right by him every day, day after day. He's alienated from God. In that culture, most people believe that if you were handicapped, you were cursed. You had done something wrong, something unforgivable. His life was plagued with alienation, with broken relationships. He was an outcast until his friends ripped the roof off so that he could get to Jesus. And here's where the story gets even weirder. When Jesus saw the desperation of the friends, he turns to the paralytic and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He's like, wait, what? Your sins are forgiven? Jesus, do you have any idea what it's like to be me? Do you have any idea how invisible I feel? How powerless? I know you mean well, but I didn't come here for forgiveness. 
But Jesus sees the man and he thinks, how could I possibly heal his body and neglect his soul? How could I possibly restore him physically and not also spiritually? So he does both. And this is what compassion does. It restores people comprehensively. It doesn't just meet needs. It brings them in. It turns outcasts into friends. It creates kinship. It rips the roof off until there's no one left on the outside looking in. What roofs need to be ripped off of your neighborhood, your workplace, your school? What roofs need to be ripped off of college church? The goal of compassion is reconciliation, renewed relationships. The goal of compassion is to bring people into community, to bring people into the heart of God. But it's costly. Certainly was for Jesus. When, we, when Jesus met the paralytic, uh, Jesus was well. He was popular. Crowds flocked to hear him. While the paralytic had to be carried by his friends. After he met Jesus, the paralytic was forgiven. He was restored. Can't you see him clicking his heels as he runs down the street for the very first time? But on the cross, Jesus was led out of the gate and his legs were nailed to a tree before she met Jesus the bleeding woman was alienated from her neighbors she was alienated from the temple she was constantly hemorrhaging but after she met Jesus she was, she was healed she was affirmed she was blessed she was restored but on the cross Jesus was abandoned by his friends alienated from the Father, bleeding from his head and his hands and his feet. This is what compassion does. It draws near. It gets personally involved. It takes risks. Jesus, moved by compassion, became an outcast so that we could enter in. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was broken so that we could be healed. He was cursed so that we could be forgiven. He was killed so that we might have life to the full. That's compassion. And when you see what Jesus gave up to bring you in, it will turn you into the kind of person who joyfully shows compassion to others no matter what it costs. Amen.